a podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. First question is, who is, who was the first person you saw be good at life? Does that make any sense to you? It does make sense to me. And it's an interesting one because I'm, I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced I saw anyone good at life until I was about, or I thought that was good at life until I was about 21, 22. Um, and that's, you know, I was brought up you know, in a family with, with no money and having to go to work and everything else. There was nothing inspiring about my childhood, if I'm brutally honest. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I think I was in, I was in London and uh, it was a guy who was running, doing a fairly, now, now I know a lot about financial services, doing a fairly bog standard, you know, job. He was a regional sales director for an insurance company. Um, but he was a thoroughly nice guy with buckets of charisma, you know, a family that was well looked after, a really good boss, lots of strategic direction, um, and great values. Uh, and so I, I don't know. I, I think I think that was probably the first time I looked at somebody and said, "Okay, I can I can aspire to be that." But there was there was no one before. And when you say you aspire to be that, what did you? What was he doing well that you thought? Because you. You use some terminology now that I think you probably you may not have used at, your, uh, at the time, right? No, that's right. How did you judge it in your world? What, what was he doing? At that time? Yeah, what was he doing better than your immediate world? Well, again, if, you, if I benchmark, to, uh, go back to everything before that, you know, I had a single mum, you know, we always struggled for money. I went to work outside of school when I was 13, so I was always working in kitchens. You know, just to get extra cash, and that, that was the way to get cash for the family. And I somehow managed to get myself to to college. I don't think I can stretch to call it university, although it was a university just, um, and do a degree, which was really more about buying time for, for me at the, at the time. I what was your I, degree in? Sociology and psychology. Oh. So it was, it was you know, human sciences. But um, And you wanted to do that? That was your goal? You were, trying to, you were saving to do that? No, I mean, I was no. <laughs> Education for me at the time, if I'm brutally honest, was all about deferring, having to make any big decisions. <laughs> which, which, you know, uh, I'm not sure if that's still the case, but at the time, that was the case. And there were things like, you know, I, I had it a lot easier than kids would these days because we had grants. Right. So I got a grant. Mm. And so I did have to get a student loan out, but if I'm, you know, the student loan was literally just to bolster you know, your income needs. So it was never significant. I think I borrowed about £10,000 over three years or something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all of that was deferral until I got into the real world. And I was brought up in the countryside. So I was brought up in South Devon. Mm. Um, and South Devon to visit and South Devon to live in are two very different things. And, and, and clearly, it depends on where you live in South Devon. But a whole bunch of people that went to school with me are still in the same town in South Devon, generally smoking joints and not doing a lot, right? So your, your only ch- chance of work really was tourism or farming i think back in those days these days obviously it's easier to run a business from just about anywhere but, sure. um, do you speak to anyone from back home not really i've got a couple of connections on facebook i was in a band yeah the bass player <laughs> and me are still you know connected really he's working in a sausage factory right uh, seems to like him which is which is good so, yeah. <laughs> so, which is good <laughs> so, so. what was but, the um, music uh rock what kind of rock all sorts of rock because so 
don't know, ACDC. Okay, so yeah, fairly, yeah. yeah. Exactly, Guns N' Roses, all that sort of fairly stuff. Fairly loud rock. Loud, ba- yeah, exactly, Van Halen. Only yeah. the simple stuff. Van, yeah, I was going to say, Van Halen's <laughs> quite twiddly. Okay, yeah. and what, what, what age when that was that, that band started? Uh, I guess about 13. Okay, wow. There you go. That's a memory. I don't have many memories from my childhood. Do you still play any instruments? Yeah, I still play guitar. I've got too many guitars. But um, I remember I used to have to... We lived on a very steep high street. And so to get to his pub where they had a room we could practice in, mm. uh, I used to have to wheel down my amplifier on a skateboard <laughs> uh, with my guitar on my back. That is yeah. very Marty McFly. It was cool. <laughs> Apart from getting back up the hill, obviously, the way back mm. was, was dangerous. But yeah, yeah, so... That's brilliant. I guess 13. So mu- music's always been a big big thing for me and I as to your point I, I still play mm-hmm. I had a little guitar with me this weekend when we went to my sister's boat so okay. nice did you talk about that being your future what music mm-hmm. no it was definitely not going to be my future really <laughs> it would have been own... nice to be my future <laughs> yeah yeah but I know I don't know at 13 we were just doing it for fun right I mean we could lock ourselves in the back room of a, of a pub and play music mm. and chat which was great. Yeah, but at 14, 15, I remember my mate played guitar and I wrote songs. Mm. And he used to go, oh, these melodies are so great. And I was like, we are literally going to be famous just as soon as the right sequence of events happens. Mm. We're going to be That's as big as Blur. Yeah. yeah. Blur. <laughs> I grew up yes. in Essex and they were yeah. in Colchester and I had a part-time job in Colchester. Yep. They went to the same place you're going to. Yeah, oh, okay, the, yeah, the college. Oh, yes. University of Essex. Yeah, oh, well, I don't know if it was called that then, but okay. they were yeah hanging around there, and that was that was a very clear um, future, I thought, for me. Yeah. Did but you never? We was in covers. <laughs> Cover bands. So for starters, oh, you know, fine, right. <laughs> you're not going to be famous doing covers. Okay. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a few bands out there that that, that maybe yeah. get relatively good billboard listings with covers, but generally no. Right? So we weren't writing material. Sure. At what point do you feel like you start to um, envision the, re- the reality you are in now? That's a good question. So I, I, I went from university to London yeah. for two reasons, really. I mean, what, one was for a girl at the time. Mm-hmm. Not a girl I'm with now, but a girl at the time. <laughs> and Exactly. So I followed her summer holidays, and her parents put me up in the granny flat next door. Really? And uh, she was a first year, I was a third year. And so, so when she went back, I stayed in the granny flat thinking, OK, well, I'm not going back to Devon, yeah. ever. And I'm, you know, I'm not going back to Staffordshire, where I was. And so uh, I, I got a job running the bar in the, in the local uh, village. And I ran that bar probably for a year, year and a half. And um, the reality was... I was good at it, and it was good fun. Uh, we had some strange people coming to the bar, like Jimmy White and Cliff Richard were locals. Really? Um, but uh, I guess I made a decision. I know I made a decision at some point to sort of say, wait a second, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. I've worked in bars and kitchens ever since I was 13, and I, I know how hard it is and yeah. how unrewarding it is unless mm-hmm. you, you happen to be able to you know, run a massive chain or, or, or you know, build a big business empire, which wasn't on my mind. So I got out of that, and I guess, you know, thinking about it, my wife, uh, my wife, not my wife, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time, father was an accountant, and he was sort of saying, you know, go out and you know, try and get a proper job, by which I think he meant, you know, something like accounting. Mm-hmm. And I actually got a, I got a, a temp assignment, so I, jo- I just went to a temping agency, and I got a temp assignment at British American Tobacco, at BAT, 
And I started working there. And interestingly enough, at the time, they owned an insurance company. What was the job they assigned you to? I just literally went in as a graduate, and I was doing all sorts of admin. tasks and admin. Yeah. But you, you shifted around, and I shifted into their insurance company, yeah. where I was doing tasks and admin. Yeah. Um, and actually ended up in a branch in Surbiton, of all places. Um, and I spent probably four or five years in insurance, which yeah. is where I met the gentleman that I referred to. But, but at that point, I guess, quite blandly, I saw... You know, people were saying I was doing good things. I was getting lots of praise. And uh, I had my first great manager experience there, a lady called Kathy, who was, I think she lives in the US now, but she was just really great at seeing potential. Mm. Um, And, you know, just kept loading me with more and more stuff and opportunity. Um, And so with all of that sort of praise and direction... And with a few role models, I think at that point I sat there and sort of thought, well, you know, this is interesting. There's a, there's a whole industry around this. Even though I'm not in that industry anymore, but there's a whole industry around this. You can you make a decent living from it, which, yeah. quite frankly, I suppose at that time, you know, that would have been a primary driver for me. It's not wanting to be in the situation that, that you my mum was at the time. And so I think at that point I just went, yep, this will do for me. Some nice people. I've made some friends. I can do the job. People seem to think I've got potential. Yeah, let's follow this. When Cathy loaded you with um, work, yeah. you now see it as opportunity, which is awesome. Yeah. And it is... What did you think it was at the time? Opportunity. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, definitely. How did you see that and so clearly? Some people can't always envisage what they're being given when they're in the middle of the learning process or changing mm-hmm. who they... Well, uh, you know, at the end of the day, everything we're talking about is opinion, right, that you form through your life. But, but I do believe, I've, see, I've seen, you know, now I've had lots of people work for me and I've had lots of you know, jobs when you manage people. I, I definitely see some people, you know, a lot of people come through that come with a sense of entitlement um, and I have very little time for them. And then you see others come through with a completely different attitude. Very often, very often, the people with a different attitude come from a background that they don't, you know, they, they appear to be running away from. Mm, really? And appear to have had, you know, a tough childhood. Not always, by the yeah. way. And, and that's the complexity, I think, about childhood, right? You have people come from terrible backgrounds that achieve amazing things. And yeah. people come from amazing backgrounds that achieve terrible things. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it, I know it's complex. But very often it's when someone comes in, you know, and they, they clearly, you know, they want to get somewhere. Yeah. And it's those people, I think, that see it as an opportunity. Yeah. The people who come in with a sense of entitlement often see it as a, as a, dis, you know, a distraction or something beneath them. Um, but, yeah, for me it was, wait a second, someone's given me a chance, yeah. taking some interest. Yeah. You know, grab it with both hands. Where did you kind of, where did that come from then in you? Where, did, did you? Was there any figures that by osmosis or how did you come to that feeling of um, I want to get somewhere, I can do it? Because some people I think are hampered by, mm. if it's not entitlement, it's the inverse, which is, I'm not good enough for this, or this, is, this isn't a place for me. Yeah. I, 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 I still have a bit of that, by the way. So I still have a bit of imposter syndrome, uh. I, I think it's uh, called. And, and, you know, people say things that stick with you. I remember one lady saying to me, I, I, I either find people are running towards something or running away from something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, you usually sit in one of those camps. And, and I think initially, um, and maybe sometimes still now, uh, you know, I was running away from something, which was, I don't want to go back there. 
I don't want that life. Yeah. I, don't, you know, I, I, I need to be something else. I want to be more comfortable. I don't want to you know, constantly be worried about my financial well-being and my stability. So I was definitely, it was definitely a running away thing. But equally, when I look at my siblings, and I don't want to talk about them in too much detail, but you know, I'm doing what I'm doing now, working for one of the largest financial services companies in the world and you know, in a senior role. Um, my brother's a hairdresser. Yeah. So completely different, and he yeah. he went into the forces, and he had he had some trouble early on in his life, and yeah. then then he set up his own hairdresser in, in Suffolk. But it's it's a very different existence. Yeah, yeah. And he definitely had um, some more struggles when he was younger. I didn't. You know, my mum actually eventually remarried, and and we had a stepfather. I caught the you know I caught him when I was at those former late sort of teen years, just about to leave home. How old was that then? Was that I guess. Four- I guess I must have been originally sort of 13 or so when he came to live with us, maybe. Yeah. 14? Yeah. 13, 14. And, but Gareth, my brother, would have been a lot younger. And so, you know, he had a, a long influence on, on my brother. Yeah. And a short influence on me. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, my brother, I, I can say it because he's not with us anymore, my, my stepfather. He passed away a few years ago. But my brother didn't get on with him at all. Yeah. But I had some sort of bond and, it's, and there was two things, really. So the first thing was he had the best music collection known to mankind. And you hadn't had that before? No, it's insane. So he had these big, he had a quad, I remember this quad preamp, valve amp, big speakers, everything else. He had blues records. He had, you know, going back to 1908, like, you know, he, original cut vinyl. And he had, you know, all the way through jazz, rock, rock and roll, everything, right? Wow. And literally, if you were interested, yeah. he liked to talk. So if you were interested... Yeah. You could sit down with him for hours mm. and he'd just be playing this stuff. Great. And so that, to me, obviously, as a, an yeah. aspiring guitarist, was just like heaven. Yeah, so, totally. Whereas for everybody else, it was boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think if people weren't interested in him, he got a bit, he was a bit grumpy. Yeah. To be fair, he was definitely a bit grumpy and a bit strict. Yeah. But our connection was music. Um, that's yeah, really I'm going slightly off piece here. But <laughs> no, that's yeah, really so, 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 I know. So, so he definitely had some sort of influence on me. Yeah. My grandfather did, and again, my, my younger brother didn't really have as much time to get to know my grandfather, but he was, he was uh, in the military mm. um, during the Second World War, never liked to talk about that, mm. and then he spent, all I think, pretty much his entire career legal in general. Wow. And again, in the back of my mind, you know, there's this sort of financial services slant, <laughs> but, but he was, you know, it's funny enough, I still have his legal, I've got photos from his leaving do, black and white photos from his leaving do, that's very tough. Else. Wow. And I remember when I, I, you know, again, he had a big influence on me. I remember if you go and stayed with him, which we often did, you know, my mum would drop us off over the summer and we'd go and stay with them. Where was that, the same area? And no, uh, he, he, yeah, it was Devon, sorry, yeah. which is how we'd ended up there, but right on the coast. And he was, he was very military. He'd wake up every morning, you know, he'd put on his, uh, his trousers and his vest. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing now he must have washed at some point, but I never saw him do it. It must yeah. have been in the evening yeah. or something. And then he'd wake himself up by you know, running a, a cold basin of water and then submerging his face yeah. for a couple of minutes, holding his breath, submerging his face. So you know, as a young lad, he'd just watch him do this. Wow. And then he'd, he'd, he'd uh, then go on the floor and he'd do 50 press-ups, 50 sit-ups. Really? You know, which for, you know, in a guy that's that. retired, yeah, pretty impressive, right? That's impressive. Yeah. And he'd go on upstairs and have the same breakfast that he'd have. He'd always join him some stewed apples and yogurt, you know, from from the orchard. And they may, you know, by the way, they say the orchard. It's a, it was a little house with trees around it, but it's it was funny. He was very disciplined. Yeah. So I, I, I you know, I often 
think that he must, you know, he's probably the most fatherly influence I had. Right. And his sense, you know, he taught me to iron shirts and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, um, you know, his sense of discipline I admired. And then my strict stepfather, you know, who had this amazing love for music and told yeah. great stories about being in London in the 60s, you know, yeah. mopeds. Um, you know, again, just, just, you know, inspired me a little bit, I guess. Yeah. So, so I, I, don't know, I don't know what it was about that, but that fear of not wanting to be, you know, poor in Devon, yeah. <laughs> doing nothing, yeah. um, plus seeing probably my grandfather do something career-wise that looked pretty steady, all those sorts of things, I think gave me some sort of drive. But, yeah, but yeah most people have said you, you know, to me that get to know me that I have a lot of energy. Yeah. This is probably my defining factor, even though it's Tuesday morning, I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> but um, a lot of energy. And, you know, I never, back to your original question, just, you know, I saw opportunity as opposed to... Yeah, I, yeah I can see that. So um, also two things that occurred to me, those two individuals you mentioned there, yeah. they, have, they seem to have purpose, right? So oh. the ex-military thing, the overspill, it still kind of gave a purpose and a definition to the day, standards as well. Structure. <clears throat> Structure. Yeah. And was that appealing? Yeah, probably. And my wife would say, you know, I'm, I'm you know, she'd say many nice things, of course, but, um, but that I probably am a man of structure. Right. And it's funny, I can't work out that's a male thing. It probably isn't a male thing, but like when I see my, my little boys, you know, when, you're, when you've got little boys and, you know, they lose their temper when you try and get them to do something oh. they don't want to do, if you, if you pre-warn them, Tomorrow morning, we're going to get up, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. They go to bed, and in the morning, they're much better at it. If you don't tell them, and then you wake them up in the morning, I need you to do X, they'll be like, no. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they filled their mind yeah. with so Structure can help quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. And, you know, maybe structure gave me some sort of security. But I do, you know, I, I, I definitely got a sense of structure from, from certainly from my grandfather. Yeah. Um, Were they quite, quite, yeah, quite you seem quite, um, like you said, very much, I always thought you were a people person when we first mm. met. You spoke very openly and it didn't really feel like a structured conversation. No. Um, and normally people who have the type of responsibilities you do are very structured or guarded um, and methodical. And you seem to be very kind of free thinking, freewheeling. Did you, um, were they those characters, those two individuals, were they quite, were they raconteurs or were they, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Did they have that type of like flair or something? No, I, I don't think my granddad did. I mean, my granddad must have done in the early days. I mean, when I began to hear stories about, you know, he, I think he sold the first ever corporate pension scheme in the UK. You know, he, was, <laughs> yeah, so he, he was selling and he you know, did lots of trips. I think he probably was, but I didn't see it. Um, and I think my stepdad probably was. I certainly, you know, he, he, he said when he was on form, he was certainly, you know, he had charisma and yeah. charm. Yeah. And again, my wife, when she first met him, you know, the first day she was like, he is charming. I mean, you, really? you, said, you, said, you said, you know, yeah, yeah. So, sorry in advance because yeah. you'll bend your ear. And then I think it was the second and third night he played a, a Van Morrison to her for, you know, from beginning of career to end because <laughs> he figured out she had an Irish connection. And yeah. after that second night, she was just like, get me out of here. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, you know, again, most people when they first met him saw charm. And actually, a lot of you know, a lot of his stories from when he was younger. You know, I think he was definitely a bit freewheeling. Yeah. But but I think that there's two different things when I think of myself. So when it comes to work, planning, execution, even you know, family financial planning, you know, 
you know, family, all that sort of stuff, I can be incredibly structured. Yeah. Incredibly structured. And make sure I play things out, although I've realised you can't do everything at once, so you really need, you know, you really need to plan things out methodically. Yeah. Um, but equally, when I get into conversation, you know, when you want to talk about things yeah. openly, then I'm very happy for the conversation to go wherever it goes. Yeah. And the one thing I find interesting, you know, people that tend to be guarded or hide things in jargon tend to be hiding something or to not really know what they're talking about, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it's, it's an interesting one. I, th- I think, you know, yeah. often the best ideas come from free-thinking conversation. Yeah. I agree. Uh, you, can, you can end up walking out of a room going, wow, I've never really thought about something like that. Yeah. And so as long as you constantly, back to your point earlier, me seeing tasks as opportunity yeah. is one thing. Equally, my view is, you know, there is so much we don't know. Yeah. As humans, yeah, um, and even the things we know, we yeah, you know, we think we know, quite often turn out to be <laughs> falsities, right? So yeah. you have to keep your mind open to learning all the time, and the best way to do that is just spend time with other people, yeah, talk, explore, you know, be free thinking, don't be guarded. Yeah, that's right. In have fact, you heard the term gatekeeper before? Hmm? Have you heard the term gatekeeper? Oh yeah, gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. like um, people yeah. who use jargon are gatekeepers more or less because I feel that. Just in you being able to like speak open and transparent, like mm. we're able to learn something from you and vice versa. That's Whereas, right. um, if yeah. you do j- like jargonists are gatekeepers. It's literally just a disclaimer. Just what I well, it's yeah, true. Yeah, it's yeah. true. So I mean, you know, and if you go to any industry, look at the end of the day, or, or any business, you know, there there are people out there that have accumulated um, tremendous amounts of knowledge in certain areas, and they pass that on and pass that on and pass that on. But but a lot of industries are protected by jargon. You know, financial services is a yeah. case in point, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, to understand equities and bonds, the two key cornerstones of, of certainly listed capital markets or public public markets, it's not complex. It's actually quite easy. The trouble is we just don't teach people about them. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, not from an early age. And, and very often I meet, you know, very mature people, <laughs> uh, often senior people, you know, um, that still don't understand Mm. capital markets but it's not complex mm. but then when you look at financial services I chuckle because there's usually three or four you know protected terms for exactly the same thing mm. <laughs> and why would they put you know why would they be three or four <laughs> who does that serve <laughs> yeah. who does that serve yeah. certainly doesn't serve the public right but um, yeah. so to your point I think you know language can be a gatekeeper yeah. it can, can be part of the gatekeeper process and, and nine times out of ten you know it's destructive there's no particular use for it right yeah I agree. Um, where was so you told us like a bit about your story? I'm sure there's a lot more to it. But like, at what point now did you first see yourself as successful? Because was it when I don't know? I don't want to put things into your head. When do you think you first saw yourself as successful? So um, it's quite an easy answer because I'm not sure I see myself as successful now. And I, and, I, and I don't mean that in a in a flippant way. But I think about this all the time. So it's funny because you know we, we I, I, I've been in financial services com- companies and I am a financial services company that happens to be owned by a bank but I'm in, a, I'm in an asset management business owned by a bank and quite often when I get to the banking side I mean you've seen in banks there is a lot of false hierarchy yeah. um, and it's quite interesting because you get a lot of people that go into banking as a career and they're like well, I want to make VP mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. how do I get from VP to yeah. managing director or to director you know, yeah. to, to, which to me is all complete nonsense I, I, this is a personal opinion, by the way. So, so we're, we're obviously talking personally today. It's complete nonsense. You know, who, who in their right mind, yeah. as a member of the human species, would measure their worth 
yeah. based on somebody telling them that they are now a managing director. I mean, that's the comp- oh. it's just crazy, right? Mm. And so, so uh, occasionally they wheel me out in front of young graduates, and, and what I say to them is, look, you know, as far as I'm concerned, those sorts of hierarchies and structures, you know, in, in the right way were built in order to try and make efficiency, you know, create an efficient decision-making framework. And so, look, at the end of the day, let's say we all go to work 10, 11, 12 hours a day, whatever the hours are. What do I do with my 11? What do you do with your 11? What do you do with your 11? In theory, all of those 11s together should add up to perfect execution, right? Which means we have to have clear demarcation in terms of what we're doing and, and responsibilities. Although, of course, that, that entire concept is being challenged right now in terms of how some other companies are working, right? But, but to me, so, so I don't buy into any of that. And right now, it's funny because, you know, I'm not saving lives or teaching children. Mm. Those two things are hugely meaningful. And so, um, you know, I, I bow to anyone doing those sorts of careers. And, and, you know, so I see myself as, as lucky and you know, the capitalism doesn't necessarily work based on the value of the input to society today. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm cut, I, look, I, I sometimes stop and I would call myself lucky. And... You know, if the question was, when did you first think of yourself as lucky? Uh, it would probably be when I met my wife, and certainly a few months afterwards. Um, it certainly is now, when I happen to be part of her extended family, who are amazing, quite frankly. Most people say their in-laws are a problem, but my, my in-laws are absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, and I have two boys, and when I have the privilege of watching them you know, grow up and learning things as a parent, which everyone goes through, right? You know, there's, no man- there's, there's a million manuals, but I think everyone goes through their own journey. When you begin to realise that it's not my job to, to form them, it's my job to create an environment in which they can form themselves, I think, you know, you have to sort of let them go and all that sort of stuff. At that point, I think of myself as lucky and as privileged, but not successful. Sure. And so um, I, don't like, I don't like the word. <laughs> Quite frankly, what? so so sorry. It's no, a bit no, of a no, plaguey no, answer, but it's no, let's stick with that. that. Why, why don't you like the word? Because it implies that there's an opposite. Yeah. And you know the reality is, the reality is when you look at challenges that people face around the world, the, you know they are immeasurable. I mean, the amount of different existences that people everywhere around the world go through. Yeah. They're immeasurable. And, and everybody has a different set of obstacles in front of them. In fact, I chuckle, right? Because at the moment, <laughs> I chuckle about this all the time. My, my boys go to a private school. So, you know, and I, 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 went, to a, I went to a pretty down-to-earth comprehensive school <laughs> where we got away with murder. Um, you know, I, I have fond memories, but we absolutely got away with murder and, and academic progress was not necessarily uh, top of the agenda, certainly at that time. But where we are, you know... I don't know whether I um, ethically agree with private schools, but the one thing you find when you're a parent is that, you know, you sit there and go, where am I? What's the best I can do for my child right now? I mean, you, you sort of don't measure anything else at that point. You just go into sort of selfish mode. Well, not selfish mode, because it's not selfish, but you go into child protection mode. But they go to private school, and, and some of the nonsense you hear other parents worry about. I mean, they'd all admit it when they, when they stop, but, you know, because they're mostly sensible people, right, and, and nice people, but their, their, their concerns or worries, yeah. you know, 
might be that you know the car park on the on the road outside the school's been made to, it's now pay it's now pay car park I mean, <laughs> my lord i'm gonna have to pay <laughs> you're like really you can't afford to pay okay yeah, yeah um yeah. you know or there's a nits outbreak you know or um you know, or a certain teacher is leaving. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're not really serious problems, are they? Right? Mm. But, but I think everyone, everyone has problems, everyone has challenges. Everyone has a certain, you know, has a, their own unique perspective on, on where they sit in the pecking order. And my point is you can have, you know, success is just an awful word in many respects. To me, success ultimately, but it's personal. It becomes personal. And, and it, it's... One thing I'm definitely not completely successful at is if you can find true happiness in your own skin um, and you can partner that with uh, unashamedly, you know, un 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 being unashamedly kind with no sense of needing to get anything back. I mean, that must be true success. But then even the people that display those traits probably don't think of success either. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> it's, you know I mean? I, I think it's a really interesting concept. Um, there's a par there's a, an interesting parallel with... Um, I think back in the Victorian days, they used to call um, uh, poor people unfortunates. Oh, right? <laughs> but I, I kind of prefer that to losers. And if you think of, like, the Americanism of winners and losers, yeah. you're exactly right. If you say, oh, this person's a winner you then afford the situation of that person's a loser and yeah. you, you imply some element of control over a situation yeah. in the same way that success does. You, were, you had all the control over your situation, you're not successful. Yeah. And again, it's somebody else's terminology of what success is. Right. So I, really, I think it's a really interesting point. Right. It's all perspective, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if, if success was, uh, was you know, a binary definition of having made X amount of dollars, yeah. or you know, let's just say that was the binary definition of success, uh, we probably wouldn't have any teachers uh, or, or any right. medical professionals. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, so, so everyone's setting out their stool of success, you know, differently, if indeed they measure it. And, and I think, therefore, it's just, it's just a strange word, right? As you yeah. said, you know, I, in fact, God, I have not looked at the history of where it came from. Yeah, yeah. But by definition, as you said, if you, if you want to have the term success, then you've got to have the term, you know, unsuccessful. Failure. You've got to have failure. Yeah. And so... So, yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's a difficult word. Yeah. It's a difficult word. And I don't think, you know, at the end of the day, if my children end up hap you know, happy mm -hmm. and comfortable in their own skin and confident and doing what they want to in life, maybe I'll go to my deathbed thinking, yes, I've achieved some success. Yeah. Um, but up until that point, it's not really a word for me. How do you, in, the, in a moment of um, stress or, or all the things that say the structure around you, I don't mean necessarily in your working life, it could be in any part of your life, but let's say a number of kind of goals fail and you find yourself getting stressed and you, maybe you find yourself getting caught up in some of those little things you just mentioned, like, and now an extra thing's happened, like, well, now we have to pay to park here, et cetera, or whatever. How do you, um, how do you go back to that state of perspective? I mean, there's two things. I, I would never say that about the parking. That, that's, yeah, it's funny. My wife is Irish, and so she does think about the pennies, and I'm just like, oh, God, so just whatever. Just pay I don't care. Um, pay, pay the parking. Yeah, but um, look, I do... I mean, yeah, I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say there weren't certain things that you stress about. So my wife would say sometimes I worry a little bit too much about the, you know, the, the financial planning, you know, i.e., 
you know, some of these scary numbers people don't realise, right? Yeah. Really scary yeah, numbers, yeah, right? Yeah. But in the world where there's no DB pension schemes and there's no state provision, and trust me, by the time we're all retiring, there won't be any state provision because the, the numbers don't add up. No. You know, that you need a million pounds in cash. You know, it, your pension fund needs to be worth a million pounds to generate whatever the number is, right? It's less than 30,000 a year on current annuity rates, right? So how many people are going to have a million pounds popped away in savings and investments in today's terms by retirement? Answer, should, should probably we, not many, right? Can we just explain, just for listeners who may not come oh, from a financial services background? Sorry. No, no, if we just, if we just say, um, at the moment, people, some people's pensions um, were what they call a final salary, That's which right. meant that they got their salary every year when they retired, roughly. Yeah, or a percentage of, yes. Percentage of their salary every year. Yeah. And that stopped a way back... Yeah, certainly there are still some people. There's a few people in in those schemes today. Oh yeah, yeah. But most of them are closed. Yeah, most of them are closed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and now the concept of retirement. What's the retirement age at the moment? What's the advised age? I should know off the top of my head. Is is it not just six? Well, it was traditionally sixty-five. Is it now sixty-seven or something? Something like that. Yeah. Um, And of course, look. Everyone says those entire concepts are, are, are are. outdated and most people will, I, mean, I think I'll end up you know, working not necessarily because I need to but because I want to yeah um, but nonetheless you know if you're at this point where you need to stop working as hard as you did and you stop earning yeah then you need some sort of income yeah so where you were going obviously is that these days you have to provide for that yourself yeah and that means a savings plan that needs to, to generate 30k a year it needs to be about a million pounds worth of saving yes which many people are nowhere. Nowhere near, right? No. So, so I guess just going back to your, your point about the stress moments, I think too much about that. So, you know, I'm sat there, my wife thinks, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit depressive when we get to those sorts of things. She's like, just, just breathe, you know. We've got a nice house. The kids are in school. We don't have lots of debt. You know, all those, you know, those things that most people would say, wow, okay, that's, that's comfortable. Um, but I still worry about those things because I know what they mean and I guess, given my background, you know, I, that's the one thing I think, I've just got to make sure my wife is secure. Yeah. My kids are secure. Yeah. You know, certainly not, I don't want to spoil them and give them loads of money to go and you know, burn. I just want them to get a good education. Yeah. You know, I worry about those things. But then, other than that, um, to your question, you know, I do, yeah, yes, of course, I find myself in moments of stress. The trouble is I think I'm typically male and I get over them quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can fall out with somebody and then three seconds later, I, I think it's all fine. Yeah. So I'm sort of a big believer in say, sorry, move on. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, <laughs> maybe that makes me emotionally stunted. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, don't, I don't hold... Um, <laughs> last Yesterday, sorry, I'm going to go off piece completely. We had um, very good friends, parents, who are now very good friends of ours from America... Uh, were with us having a barbecue, and they're just the funniest people you ever met. And, and um, she's of Irish descent as well. And she, she said, oh, I had an, an Irish... They were, they were talking about this wedding they went to um, in Ireland. They ended up at the wrong wedding. <laughs> it, took them, it took them about 10 minutes in the wedding to realise they were at the wrong place. Okay. But they were supposed to be at a church with exactly the same name at the other end of the village. I mean, only in Ireland, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she said... Um, she, she was talking about um, holding grudges... Mm. And how that's a she was saying it's a very Virgo thing, and secondly, it's a very Irish thing. She said uh, the famous Irish saying she got told is, um, I don't remember your name, but I remember what you did to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, that's interesting. Go on, Sue, going completely off piece. Sorry about that. No, no, Um, on on the grudge thing, the same thing about stress. Do you have a way of resolving that? 
in your head? No, I'm too practical. I think my work life has made me too practical. So, so, yeah, so what, I, what I usually do is, look, when, when somebody falls out, and I think, by the way, part of my success in traditional terms of my career, part of my ability to get on in my career has been that I don't mind people losing their temper. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I th think back to it, I mean, my first father was um, you know, a violent alcoholic, quite frankly, right? And we escaped from him um, early in my life. And I'm sure that's formative in some form or fashion. But it's interesting. I've worked for a lot of people that have a habit of losing their temper. You know, people that have smashed phones and thrown things and shouted and screamed. And lots of people can't cope with that. Um, but I can. So in my mind, what I usually do, and it's a bit like the you know, falling out with people thing, is I sit there and I go, okay, so this poor person's got something going on in their life. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, but hey, just let them get it out. Sure. Because the one thing you also learn when you do a little bit of psychology is usually, you know, of course that there are certain tactics where you might want to intervene, but, but you know, generally speaking, that's not a good thing. Just, yeah. just let them get it out. Let it get just out, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And once they start to run out of energy and the, you know, the, the cadence gets slower, you can sort of just lean forward and, and then say, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Or how can I help? Or whatever. But, you know, so, so I think I don't tend to get in stressful situations like that. And I know I've gone a long way around the, um, the conversation. But the, the things that I have in my life that help me, I think, deal with stress. So I have th three, I'd say three passions. Um, other people might call slightly obsessive hobbies, but um, so I play guitar. Yeah, uh, I raced mountain bikes from you know an early age, and I still still do long distance cycling. So you know I'm on my bike four times a week, either in a studio or out in the in the real world, and yeah. I'll do a few trips a year. And I like cycling up mountains and racing down mountains and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, way before everyone else started, by the way, because it's got very popular. <laughs> but uh, I used to do it when it was really, really, really untrendy. <laughs> Uh, even though it's not trendy now, right, because it's middle-aged men. But anyway, um, and then cooking. And, oh, nice. and, you know, when I was talking to somebody about this the other day, they all do, or two of them do a similar thing, and one of them does a very different thing. So on a bike, when you're cycling up a mountain in France, and let's say it takes you an hour to climb, you know, an uncategorized uh, climb in the Pyrenees or the Alps, you end up in a rhythmic pain. Um, because that's just generally what it is. And you know you've got to get to the top. You're going to be in pain for the amount of time it takes you to get to the top. Pa Sorry, just pain where? Uh, legs? Legs. Um, obviously, one of the most important muscles to cycling, most people don't realise, is Bum. your butt, yep. your gluteus maximus. Yep. Very important mu muscle. Um, if you're doing it wrong, you're back. But uh, you know, generally speaking, it'll be legs. So calves, you know, uh, hammies. And, and your, your glutes, right? And so yeah. you'll, you'll get this pain. And the trouble is, right, so, so it's very easy to take that pain off if you stop. Yeah. But you don't, so you just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And so with that pain, what I find on a bike is I can often f find solutions to things on a bike because your mind wants to go somewhere else. Sure. So you take it off somewhere else. Yeah. You know, and, and you very often you know, get to the top of a climb or the end of a long ride and you fix something in your head. That's great. Um, and, and I think it's just because your mind is trying to do something else, it just becomes very productive. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I play guitar, yeah. and I think, you know, cooking somewhere between the two, actually, depending on what sort of cooking you're doing. But when I play guitar, my mind can't afford to be somewhere else. Yeah. It just has to be in the music. It's in a, they call it in a state of flow, don't yeah. they? Yeah, so, so you clear your mind. You're guitar. unthinking. Yeah. So I never solve anything playing guitar. <laughs> no. you know, work, but, but I absolutely... Blood pressure goes down, hopefully. Blood pressure goes down. You come out of playing the thing and you just, you're like, 
And yeah. it's funny when you, if you go into playing guitar in some sort of emotional state, yeah, either stress or a bit upset or a bit whatever, yeah, you tend to play the best music you ever played. Really? I'm sure you know. Yeah. So whatever you're playing, and then when you really play it, you come out with it, you know, really well. Yeah. And I often pick up my guitar and play really badly, or I'll pick up my guitar and play really well, and they're, they're two very different things. Mm. Um, but when you finish that, you get this immense sense of, you know satisfaction and being in, in, in the right state of mind. So mm. it's interesting how those hobbies allow yeah. you to do different things. But um, to me, I think if I didn't have those, yeah, I'd probably be a complete mess. That's really interesting. I'd need to do uh, a cycling. Because <laughs> the, the, the only thing I ever solve is in the shower in the morning. I plan my day and I think about this. But I'm there just kind of like... just being heated up to like a maximum degree and going mm. right what do I need to do today yeah but I do need that moment of um sometimes I go for walks at, we've we've taught the guys in here to if yeah, um yeah. if they're having just a stressful day or whatever just go for walks and idea generate yep so one thing we did was really cool uh we went for a walk and we literally just did a loop round bank and we met three clients on the way and one of us gave, gave them a, a job to us because <laughs> we, we just haven't caught him. We went, oh, I need to speak to you guys. That reminds me. Yeah. I was like, we just need to like, sift through London. Why and just, not? And find all the people on the street and try and get yeah. uh, work out of them. It's but, um, there's a really guy that chill. runs... Uh, have you ever read... Uh, I can never pronounce his name, so I apologise in advance. But uh, Yvonne Schoenard that runs um, Patagonia. No, no. So he's got a great book called Let My People Go Surfing. It was an, and he's a really interesting guy. So he, he started a company called Black Diamond from the back of his car. He used to live in the boot of his car, making climbing carabiners. And um, that's now a very successful company yeah. now, Black yeah, Diamond. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. It's not his company, by the way, because he had to get mm. rid of it because he was getting sued, I think, because someone used it to skateboard behind a car and got in trouble. And, you know, in America, oh, you can shit. get sued for that if you don't write, please do not skateboard behind a car with this carabiner on your packaging. Um, wow. But then his second company was Patagonia. He obviously make incredibly good outdoor wear. In fact, you know, they call it Patagucci in the States because it's all a bit cool. But it's, you know, they do silly things like they make, uh, not silly things, amazing things, like they make um, a gilet out of recycled Coca-Cola bottles right? and all sorts of things. Oh, right? awesome. so, so, but his book's called Let My People Go Surfing because I think everybody in his company needs to have a sporting passion. Yeah. And if the environment is perfect, yeah. you can just leave your desk and go. Right? So if the surf's up, go surf. Yeah. But um, they go... Uh, the, the management team goes to Patagonia every year for walkabout for exactly the same reason. I don't think they bump into clients, but they <laughs> they, they go they go to think. Yeah, that's great. So walk and think. Which, yeah. yeah. Anyway, which is uh, again the whole concept of thinking is is a really interesting you know thing to dwell on. And yeah. you, uh, it's funny. I'm I'm rereading. Uh, Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats. Yes, so you we suggested it, yeah. and okay. I bought it for buy? everyone. Yeah. Did, did you read it? Yeah. Everyone's, so we've got a meeting to, and I, I mean, as soon as you said it to me, it started to illuminate that certain conversations I'm having with people where they're coming at me with one reaction from there, the critical one normally, yes, usually and I'm critical. taking it in a negative Brits way. Brits love critical thinking, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like they compete on it. Ah, oh, but that won't work because, right? Exactly. Um, and Americans, and it's I valid. think, are much better at, you know, at... Yellow thinking, right? right. So, yeah, as they yeah. think, or you know, and, and maybe the, the white thinking hat. So, yellow thinking. Sorry, I should explain. Is, explain is the optimistic yeah. hat? Yeah. So, Edward de Bono's theory is that thinking is an art, um, and for you to truly, you know, think through problems and challenges and, and and many other things, you need to understand the idea that you can think in different ways. Yeah. And so he defined it through six thinking hats. And so when he 
runs, he encourages people to run meetings, he'll get people to, enc he'll encourage them to be wearing a certain hat for a certain part of the debate, which means that you don't get what you often get in meetings, which is people sort of competing against each other. Quite right, yeah. Because now you're all aligned. So yeah. we all have to put on our white hat, which is your, um, I think it's facts and figures, isn't it? It's the logic hat, right. data hat. The, okay. the, you know. Then we're all thinking in the same direction. Yeah, you're speaking. Yeah. You're, you're thinking from a, a designated place, yes. Uh, rather than it being your opinion. That's right. And, and that's the thing that I know I've got caught up on before. Was I, I thought this person would be more supportive of this, but actually, if they're being critical, that's one of the six re need things needed to come to the right, di you know, right. discussion. And I shouldn't be, uh, you know, I couldn't should be upset at that person for that. But I should also be saying to them, think of the other five, or let's talk about the other five as well. Yes. So it really changed. You know, it was a gear change massively for us. But we've got a meeting to talk about how we implement that properly yeah. uh, in decision making. Well, it's an interesting one as well because he says you should never refer to the hats by the attribute. You should always use the colour. Oh. Um, because, again, I think one of them, the red hat is the emotional hat, right? Sure. And a lot of people are yeah. scared to use that hat with the boss. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Right, because if the boss shares his red hat feelings <laughs> first... <laughs> They yeah. tend to all agree with them and everything else. Yeah. So he's sort of, you know, saying by using the hat names, the colours, you know, you, you disassociate any, you know, any emotion actually, or or any attribute with them, you know, personal attribute with them. You make them very sort of independent. I got anyway, a question? Sorry, no, 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 not at all. I've got a question for you. I was thinking you you asked a kind of a, a question to the air earlier, which was about why people um, care about VP and director and things like that. Yeah, and I thought. When people are in education, um, depending on where they go, obviously, but they're in a, a state of conveyor belt. So everything around them is structured and, yes, and yes, de developed, yes, right? Yes, yes. And I was thinking, well, the reason that people um, like that is that when you go into a job, suddenly you're abandoned from structure. Really, like you did, you can choose to move to different places. You can live in outhouses. You can relocate and get involved in different industries and what have you. Um, but if someone says to you, by the way, there's still a structure here, which is you've got to get from this step to this step, that can be quite seductive. Yes. Um, and I, my, you know, the fear is someone gets into their 40s, 50s or whatever, and they never get out of that state. They can only operate within that structure that they've co-opted yes. for their career. And I've seen that. Yeah. yeah, and I've seen it, you know, it can destroy people, actually, because they don't get it, right? You know, I didn't, didn't get the promotion. Yeah. I didn't make partner at a law firm. I didn't make, you know, MD at a bank or whatever, right? And, and if you've defined your life by that, you're in big trouble. Because yeah. the, tr the trouble is, you know, you are playing someone else's game. Right. And, and I'm, you know, let me get back to entrepreneurs in a minute because I'm not one. Um, but I've had the privilege of beginning to meet a number, and, and the reality is that mindset is really interesting. It's completely different, right? Yeah. But that's, you know, being, defining your life in other people's, um, other people's, you know, frames, or other people's, you know, constructs, I think is really quite a dangerous Jesus, thing, yeah. actually. Yeah. And, you know, I've only thought about that more recently. It's, it's yeah, I think the majority of people do it. Um, but, you know, and you're right, it must be a comfort thing as much as anything else. I'm in the framework, but the trouble is if that's how you're going to define, yeah. you know, whether your life is successful or not, and, you know, back to that term success, um, you're, you're uncontrolled. And, and I think the, the comparison that I worry about right now with kids is um, social media. So mm. it's interesting, you know, the, the debate of what age you should give a child a phone yeah. is a really interesting one. 
And, you know, actually, I may sound like a dinosaur, but, but the reality is the more and more I've looked into the subject, I think it shouldn't be any sooner than 16. Because actually, when you look at it, it's a drug, right? Yeah. So yeah. They, they've studied it, right? So, sure. so social media, you get a like on Instagram or you know, whatever you're using, Snapchat or blah, blah, blah. I don't know if you get likes on Snapchat. But the, the reality <laughs> is... You, you, you get hearts, don't you? On Snapchat. <laughs> Sorry, no, no. You get a reaction? Is there any reaction on Snapchat? Sorry, I don't have Snapchat either. <laughs> move on, move, move on. on. <laughs> so, so, but, but only social media where you get a response, or you can get a response, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's proven that those responses give the user a dopamine hit. Yeah, right? it's a little bump. Just like drugs, just like yeah. everything else. But the difference is, and I'm, I'm not being flippant here because I'm, I'm not advocating the use of drugs, but the interesting thing is, right, if, I, if, I, if, I'm, a, if I'm a drug user and I need my hit... I yeah. can go and get it. Sure. If I rely on social media for my hit, I can't go and get it. No. Mm -hmm. I can hope to go and get it. Yeah. Right? By posting something and waiting. Yeah. Um, and you're beginning to see the, the mental effects of that because the trouble is you're actually you're putting your dopamine hit in somebody else's hat. It's almost yeah. like the gambling piece, right? Like, yeah. You know, and it's funny because you know, I'm not suggesting my son um, you know, is, is, is addicted to social media. Number one, he does not have a phone. Sorry, I'm being forward. Um, number one, he doesn't have a phone. Um, but he does have uh, an Xbox. We caved to that finally with one game on it. He's only allowed one game, which is FIFA, because he's a football addict, right? And there is no way on this earth he's, a, he's ever getting anything like Fortnite or whatever, <laughs> line, you know, any of that stuff. But, <laughs> but the point is, and he has, he has an amount of time he's allowed on a Friday and a Saturday. I think it's 45 minutes or something. But you well, can, that's, you that's can see... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're tight on that stuff, and yeah, you know, and and it's you know, and by the way, he loves it, and then we'll go out and kick some real goals, which which is much better. And by the way, he can hustle me now and hit the crossbar challenge, which mm. is slightly embarrassing. Um, he hustled me for twenty quid the other day. I didn't think he was going to do it. He kicked, <laughs> kicked the ball, hit the crossbar from way down the field. He said, mm. "Dad, twenty quid for me if I, if I hit the crossbar." I was like, "Sure." First hit. <laughs> I literally <laughs> was on the floor. Game going, over. I've been hustled by yeah. my eight-year-old son, but. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you can see it with him, like trying to get him off. Mm -hmm. It can, can elicit a, just, you know, a massively emotional reaction. Yeah. Because he's sort of stuck in this, you know, yeah. in this game, which is, which is crazy. But anyway, so, so yes, yeah, so I, I see that as very similar to, you know, the promise of managing director. The addiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you see um, education being that? It's more or less the same thing as social media and that you put it into someone else's hand. So, like, you've allowed the examining board or your teacher to determine, like, your dopamine hit. So if I get a good... If I work hard and I got a good grade, it's completely dependent on... Hmm... Is it? No, it's completely dependent on like, your teacher or the scoring or the criteria yeah. um, on um, on your success, more or less. And I feel like it was a process I had to go through. So obviously, I've always thought I was fairly intelligent, but it wasn't reflective in my grades um, for yes. a very long time until I got to university. Um, and then, which meant that I sort of devalued my ability and I didn't really understand my capabilities because school, like the schooling system, wasn't exactly suited to the way and I didn't test that well and just a number yeah. of reasons. So wouldn't you say like it is just as difficult? And I think it isn't to not prohibit the use of social media, but it is to help people to detach, um, their, like detach their, help them to detach their value from it, from finding value. In yeah, things, and I it's, it's I mean, you, you know, you, you raise a really interesting area which people could debate for hours, right? But is the purpose of education versus the education system? Yeah. So, so to me, you know, education in theory, is, is the cure to most social evil, right? Yeah, social social ills. Um, because if people truly 
you know, understood as much as possible and constantly strove to understand more, you know, all the nonsense like nationalism and bigotry and all this sort of, just go away, yeah. right? You know, you know, again, back to the fact that we all share pretty much the same genes, right? We just yeah. do, right? Sure, so, sure, so sure. And, you know, I always laugh when I find British nationalists. I mean, it makes no sense. We're a, we're a country of mongrels. We've yeah. been invaded so many times over history. I don't think there is such a thing as a British... Although I would say that the Scots are fairly pure, apparently, right? So, <laughs> but, but, but other than that, you know, this whole concept of British nationalism is completely insane. It yeah. makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But you can only see that if you continually learn and open your mind. Yeah. But as you rightly said... The education system doesn't necessarily do that. It it, it doesn't teach you necessarily to think. It teaches you to very often to store information and then be able to regurgitate it. And and that is a challenge. And in fact, I'm seeing it right now. So I I, I I, I didn't understand the private schooling system. I I didn't know anyone that went through it. But obviously prep schools take you up to 13, right? Um, and then, then you go on to your secondary school. Mm. And in London, just about every school now has moved to pre-testing, right? So get this, it's really interesting. So boys, I'm a boy, right? We know we, we, all, we all develop a little later than girls. Let's just be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so boys are beginning to show an ounce of who they might become around 13, certainly not before. But all the schools have said, wait a second, this is a business, it's competitive. So we're going to go pre-testing. So what does pre-testing mean? It means that they're testing kids right before the 11 plus, it's before that sort of thing, and they're pre-testing them to see what scores they get in order to offer pre-places for either 11 or 13. And I think just about every school in London has now moved to this pre-testing because they all started moving to Mm pre-testing. So why do they all follow each other? Because they all want the brightest students. Why do they want the brightest students? Because their grades score high, and that way they can advertise as being one of the best academic schools in London, and therefore they can attract... Yeah. the best children, and therefore they can attract money, right? Yeah. yeah. And so what's really interesting is the way they do these pre-tests are online tests, which even the teachers in the school are currently in don't see the results of. And essentially, those test scores will determine who they invite in for interview. Ooh. So to your point, if you have someone if you interviewed them, you could see something really interesting about the way their mind works, yeah. something you could really develop, someone that brings leadership qualities or you know, other things. Yeah. Well, th- that, ch- that chance doesn't exist anymore because literally you are screened on scores. Yeah. And the reality is, to your point, is, is that education? Is it a multiple choice? Uh, I have to say I haven't done it yet. <laughs> and I probably won't. It, Actually, sorry. But, you know. It won't account for questions you ask, will it? Clearly, um, clearly, you won't be able no, to. No, 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 I mean, no. no. I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether there'll be. I mean, there might be. So I'm sure that you know things like verbal reasoning and non-verbal reasoning. You're going to have to type some answers in. Sure. But there's going to be a vast, especially on the mathematics side. Yeah. There's going to be a vast majority. I would think of well, maybe multiple choice plus putting answers in. But the reality is, it's quant. Yes, definitely, yeah. it's quant. Yeah. And and as a result, there's there's a massive screen based on, yeah, based on you know your typical. Yeah, measure of academia, which yeah. is kind of regurgitate the answers. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's yeah. I don't want to sound too controversial, but it's 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 interesting. But true education, I think, is is what we just talked about. Yeah. Is is allowing someone to build a framework to think. Yeah. Um, and then to want to constantly learn and consume information. I think that's half I the issue. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. It's really it's an interesting correlation there between. Um, uh, customer service between mid-90s and mid-2000s, yeah. there was a massive 
um, shoot up in automation through um, you know call centers and things like that. Yeah. And um, some people regard it as some of the worst times ever for customer service because when you go into a new technology. There's this um, thing that happens where people use it to solve their current day problems. They don't rethink how they can use technology to create a better experience all around. They just solve problems. And so, like people like BT, they they kind of like their record ever slump of customer service was down then because they pushed everything towards automation and things like that. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Um, and there's a correlation, obviously, with um, more automation. It helps on scale, but the experience of one-to-one, it kind of invalidates and there is no... <laughs> Talking to you, you feel like you are somebody who... Um, you trust your own judgment with people or your own interactions with people. You'll use kind of data. Do you, do you think that's been in terms of how you've um, developed yourself, career, outside of your work, whatever? Do you think that um, you've trusted your own interactions with people... Um, yeah. As, a, as an indicator of, of how, you know, how to get things done or how to, who to trust, that type of thing? There's, a bit, there's definitely a bit of that. And look, at the end of the day, um, I mean, there is a bit of that. So I try... I try there's a few, you know, I'm constantly learning, right, as a leader but, and a manager. But the reality is I do believe... You know, there's one thing I always believed, which was you know, I can't tell someone what to do. I mean, you can, obviously, within reason, like, you know, how do I make a coffee? Here's how you make coffee. But, yeah, but, but the reality is, ultimately, what you want is, if I want someone to change direction or to come with me on a journey, you know, in terms of doing something, I need them to say it. Yeah. Right? And I always believed that. It was one lesson I really learned was I need them to say it. Because the one thing that's absolutely true is when words are uttered from someone's mouth, with belief, as long mm. as they're not conniving, um, with belief... That, that something triggers in their being and, and all of a sudden, you know, it's their idea, it's their decision, they own it. Yeah. And so, so I absolutely, you know, know that my nat- natural inclination is, is to spend a lot of time with people and talk a lot with people and generally go into a, a relationship with a person with a high degree of trust. Yeah. And I absolutely believe that it's for them to prove me wrong, not the other way around. They don't need to prove themselves worthy in, in many respects. They should start with you know, worthiness and trust. Mm-hmm. And, and they can absolutely lose that trust. Sure. But they shouldn't have to earn that trust. Sure. And a lot of people talk about people earning trust. I don't know you're a human being, you start with trust. Yeah. Sure. And I think if you start a relationship like that, you begin to... Of course, you have to start to make judgments about you know, people and their values and whether you trust them and everything else. And actually, what I've learned is, you know, it's not always obvious. In fact, you know, there's lots of people that are very different to you that turn out to be really great uh, employees and, you know, work colleagues and all that sort of stuff because they all come from different places. So, so to your point, yeah, there's a high degree of that in the way I do business. Um, but I absolutely, absolutely, when trying to make difficult decisions as a team, will want us to take facts because you know what i believe about the world generally speaking and there's lots of material on this is that 90 percent of the time people tend to find the facts to support their thesis sure. <laughs> it's not the other way around right sure. um and in fact i mean there's there, there's a really interesting book on this you know pe- people then use the facts they've sought to support their thesis to create a false sense of correlation yeah 
I mean, it's wonderful. It's like some of these medical tests where they're like, well, we studied, uh, you know, 100 people and 50 of them ate biscuits and 50 didn't. And 30 of the 50 people that ate biscuits developed cancer. And therefore, there is a link between biscuits and cancer. Sure. Mm. You're like, why therefore? Yeah. You know, they could be completely uncorrelated. There could yeah. be something else happening with those 30 people yeah. that you didn't study, right? But That's a very human thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. False correlation is yeah. like... Happens all the time. I know. So, uh, but anyway, the reality is if you try and take a cold look at the facts, and I'm not perfect at it by any stretch, but yeah, yeah. facts really help you make decisions. Um, you need people. You certainly want people to execute them. Certainly, you know, most businesses and most things in society are there for the benefit of the people within that society today, you would think. Um, sometimes fewer people, sometimes more people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but therefore, um, yeah, I, I'd say I, I, I have a mix of... You know, personal intuition, personal connectivity, and data. Yeah. When you're um, kind of troubleshooting things with people, again, it could be in or out of work. Mm. You mentioned your physiology there being a key um, influence to your mental health, mm-hmm. and therefore a good grounding, I guess, on which to kind of engage with people. Hopefully, make the right balanced decisions. You know, that aren't biased in some way. When you're talking to people and you're engaging with them in that, do you do you actually think to yourself? You know, what is the, what, from what foundations are these people working on? Because sometimes um, people don't get enough sleep, especially kind of in education, things like that. People moving yeah. from education to their first role. Yeah. They don't eat and uh, they might abuse alcohol or anything else. They, mm. you know, they might not be getting enough exercise and things like that. Do you kind of factor that in when you're kind of engaging with people? Um, short answer is probably not. I mean, I have my beliefs on that stuff. So when I say probably not, because I start with a degree of trust, I, you know, you start with... The tr- the tr- when you start to make judgments, you run the risk of, of, of showing bias, right? And, and the trouble is every human is, is very different. I mean, you know, I, I, I always chuckle at those stories of, you know, people like Margaret Thatcher sort of only having four hours sleep a night. Yeah, that's... And people go, wasn't that impressive? I'm like, it's just stupid. Yeah, stupid, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, you know, she yeah. didn't die particularly old and she had some real issues, you know. That's right. Um, probably from the point she walked out of number 10, quite frankly, mentally. So, um, but, but not, you know, so, so I believe a lot of those things, but I don't judge people on it because, again, you don't really know. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, someone said to me, people ask me my opinion about those things. You know, I am... I mean, because there, there are data, data and credible studies that prove sleep is critically important sure. to long-term health, uh, to managing stress, and to making sensible decisions. Yeah. Um, there are certain countries around the world I won't mention where I go, uh, and you sit there and go, God, these people make crazy decisions, but then you look at the amount of sleep they have, and the answer is not much. Right? Yeah, the reality yeah. is sleep is really important. Yeah. And as a cyclist, you know, for example, the most important part of cycle training is rest, yeah. mm-hmm. is recovery. Right? Yeah. So, so um, I'm a big believer in... Holidays. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer, you know, taking them, right? I mean, someone that doesn't take their holiday, I mean, to me is, you know, there, there is something slightly worrying going on. And switching off while they're doing it, yeah. right? Not being still connected. That's right. You have to have, I think mental well-being, look, you know, I'm not an expert, but I, I, I truly see that people that have multiple things of importance in their life, multiple, you know, sticks that they measure themselves with, um, tend to be more stable than people that sort of go all in and <laughs> yeah. on one thing, right? You know, yeah. Like going all in on your career. I mean, great. You know, if it's your own business, probably greater. If it's somebody else's, high-risk strategy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, um, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, and then you know, the reality is we know that there's, you're beginning to see now diet, mm. um, you know, your general health, 
So how you look after your your body and your mind, all of these things have a massively you know positive or negative effect depending on which side of the coin you are in your long-term performance. There is a really interesting book there's a, that I've I read recently called I'm going to remember the name of it because I'm going to misquote it. Oh, it's um, called Superfast. Lead, lead at speed. Oh wow, no, um, that one. Uh, but the whole concept of the book. I can't remember the lady's name, um, the author, uh, who comes from the tech side, is basically talking about the complexity of finding the right cadence in a business. Right. And so, you know, I think you know, the general premise is if we had all the time in the world, you'd always take longer to make decisions, right? Because you can get more facts, you can be more balanced. You can, yeah. yeah but unfortunately, you can't always do that. Yeah. And for businesses to be successful, there needs to be a sense of urgency, right? Certainly in this world. So her point is... You know, the whole premise of the book, talking to other leaders in very successful businesses, is what is the right cadence for your business and certain tasks and certain decisions within that business, some being faster, some being slower. And my point about you know, human health and work is as, as, a, as a human being, we have to find a way for ourselves to be able to sustain effort. So the question you know, has to be that. What's, how do I sustain effort? Yeah that is right for me in a way that doesn't damage me physically or mentally and um, that allows me to self-generate, allows me to continue to be effective. Um, as a manager, you worry about that in your staff too. So mm. how, do, how do I help? What's my responsibility as a manager to ensure that they can sustain effort yeah. uh, and sustain meaningful effort? Because ultimately, if I sort of burn them out, they're yeah. going to become less useful to me in the business. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's some bosses out there that don't mind burning the staff out and then going on to the next ones. But, you know, to me, that's not really the, the answer. So I think that whole sort of, you know, sustainability is quite an interesting thing when you think about the human. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we're, we're nearly over our, um, our mark. Oh, are we ending? We're nearly. We've taken way too much of our time off. Do you want to ask one more question? Um, yeah, quick left turn. Because um, you seem quite wise. How do you <laughs> how do you um, deal with trauma, or what does trauma mean to you? Wow. Okay. There you go. Finish on a light yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say, actually, that that I I've been asking myself, and this is this you know is quite deep actually. So I'm not sure that I deal with it well, and I'm trying to figure out whether I do or don't. Right. So. It's an interesting one. I, I think humans are paradoxes. Um, and I definitely feel I'm a paradox sometimes um, when I think about the difference between my work and uh, home life. So my wife is a strong, highly effective um, Irish woman um, who is successful and who I admire beyond belief. And she's incredibly organized. And so am I. But what I found myself doing, by the way, is defaulting to being highly organized at, at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then coming home and going, wow, I've got a really organized wife, which means I can sort of, you know, step back a bit, be, yeah. be a, bit, a little bit more Hakuna Matata. It's just, you know, yeah. it's funny you sort of slip into slightly different personas. Yeah. Um, what she would say, and, and many say about me, is when there's a crisis, I'm great. Yeah. All right. So, you know, step up, right? Yeah. Okay, how are we going to fix this? I'm yeah. very practical. But I think... I think, you know, um, unfortunately, it's probably the same thing with trauma. And I was tr- I'm, yeah, I've been trying to figure out why that is. And, and, and the most recent example was my brother-in-law's death, um, which was a year ago, almost exactly. And so it was my wife's sister's husband 
um, a guy called Eddie, who, you know, with hindsight, was the embodiment of, of, of a quiet, happy sage who, wouldn't, you know, you sometimes wouldn't even notice in the room, but it was amazing how many people, you know, publicly, you know, shared their grief, came to his funeral, everything else. He had such a big impact on people really quietly. Mm. And he was a great example of someone that found beauty in the most simple things and had one of the kindest hearts, I think, you know, I'll ever have the privilege of knowing. A really amazing guy. And he and my sister-in-law lived on a boat and had a young son called Sarah and had the most idyllic existence. Right? And he was really cruelly taken from the world a year ago when a delivery van driver ran straight into the back of him in static traffic whilst essentially talking to another delivery driver in a lane next to him. He's just been convicted. So um, bad driving led to the death of a very safe motorcyclist, you know, almost instantly. And when I think about myself and, and everybody else's reaction during that period of time, you know, his wife, you know, obviously, she's been phenomenally um, strong since in terms of finding purpose and doing, you know, doing things, um, you know, for the benefit of her son. And, and it's, I mean, she's been amazing, but, you know, the, the, the grief that she obviously showed and has shown and will continue to show has, has been very human. My wife, actually, the same. She was with her the whole time, and they're very close, and so you could see the massive impact on my wife. I, um, you know, when I think about my reaction, I, you know, I became very practical, mm-hmm. which is what tends to happen with me. And, and, and it's, you know, it's an interesting one. So it's big trauma, massive trauma on the family. Yeah. You know, I'm sat there thinking, what can I do for... You know, my sister-in-law yeah. and her son. How can I help with the practicalities of you know, sure. mm-hmm. reading through insurance documents or looking at you know all this sort of stuff? I, I, I become practical. Yeah, and it's funny because I wouldn't say that I, I, I. You know, people tend to think I've got a relatively high IQ, EQ, <laughs> not IQ, <laughs> EQ, um, and that you know I'm easy to talk about and I'm very expressive and all those sorts of things. But I think um, I become a bit of a robot in times yeah. of trauma, and you know, which is not really who I think of myself as. Mm. I don't know why that is. Mm. So, you know, it's an interesting one. Maybe it's because it's an easier way to cope with it. Maybe I'm playing to my strengths. You know, maybe I'm trying to see myself as, you know, the the tough person that, that, you know, Mm -hmm. because everybody else is being emotional that I don't need to be. Um, But it's, it's, you know, it's, I guess you ask the question at a point in time, point in my life where I'm trying to figure that out, you know. Is that just me? Am I happy with that? Or am I actually sort of keeping something buried under the surface? Yeah. Again, you, um, you know the Jahari window? You heard of the Jahari window? No. So uh, two psychologists in America called Joe and Harry. Mm-hmm. Joe, Harry, window. <laughs> and they developed a mechanism to talk about the value of feedback. And uh, basically, if you had a board, obviously I'm talking uh, on a microphone, if you imagine looking down on a four-bedroom house... Yep. Uh, from the roof, so you've got basically a rectangle split into four sure. four rooms, and you imagine windows on one side of the house, or let, you know, let's say the right hand side of the house, and windows on the uh, on the south side of the house. Yeah. So the east side and the south side, and you imagine on the east side of the house you've got others looking in, and you imagine on the south side of the house you've got you looking in. Mm. What they say is, you know, just imagine simplistically yourself, you as a human, being split into four rooms. And, and they use this when talking about the value of feedback. So if you look at that sort of right-hand corner room, south-facing room, that is the room where, you know, the stores things about you that you know about you and others know about you. Mm-hmm. 
They're, sure. just, they're just facts that are generally everybody thinks, both you and others. If you imagine the north side, you know, so, so on the east, northeast side, right, yeah. there's a room there that others see about you, you don't see about yourself. Yeah. You know, and sometimes in your life, people will say, oh, Ben, you know. You're very... <laughs> you're, yeah. And you'll go, what? Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, and, and they'll explain it, right? Now, they always say that feedback's really interesting because the more you ask people yeah. you know, for feedback, the more that room grows into the south. Oh, nice. Yeah, because you basically span you that south room. You become, you become more aware of yourself, yeah. which, is, which is actually a gift because the more aware you can be of what others think about you, the more you can make decisions yeah. with, with more context, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, if you sort of go to the southwest side, there's a room there you know about yourself you don't really want to share with others. Yeah. Now, you can choose to share that with others, and actually it will make others' lives easier when they're trying to engage with you because they'll understand yeah. more about you and more context. But, but you can also keep things in there privately. And then when you go to the north uh, west room, that is the room that you don't know about yourself and others don't know about you, but sometimes those things come out, yeah. <laughs> often in moments of trauma. <laughs> Locked away in a dark box. And, you know, and again, just going back to your trauma question, I, I wonder whether you know, the way I deal with trauma is because of things I have locked away in that dark box. Yeah. That's interesting. I wanted to ask, uh, on that note, so I'm going to yeah. ask you, Alvin. So, what's one thing you think you keep in a room? Um, <laughs> it's hard to say, right? <laughs> um, I can I, keep, keep, keep in a room, and maybe you've heard about yourself or you're aware of yourself. You think you probably need to, in your life, start to open up to others more. Hmm. That I've heard that some people have said about me, yeah. but I haven't seen it in myself. And therefore, if I was to ask for feedback, it would slip into my south room. Is, that... no, is there something you're aware of? I'll start off with one. I'll give you an example. Right? So I know I'm not keen on showing vulnerability because as, I guess, have been responsible for some of the stuff I am, I think that might people either might take the piss or maybe won't pay it with enough credit. credit. Do you know what I mean? That's your southwest room. So it's not that others have seen it, it's that you know you've not shared. I'm I'm consciously aware there's probably a bit of vulnerability. So my my, uh, father passed away last year and I came in the next day for work. Do you know what I mean? I didn't take any time out. It just happened in the evening and I called my sister in the morning and I just turned up for work and I worked. I didn't take any time off, basically. So I'm aware that if I've told a therapist that, I know they'll I'll answer me, oh, that's interesting. Why did you feel that was necessary? Yeah. Et cetera. Um, and I kind of wore it initially on, the, on the, the next week. I wore it as a bit of a kind of like, yeah, look at me. I've managed to get through this. And my dad just died, but I'm still just running a company. Yes. So that's one thing I need to look at myself properly about and go, probably need to show a bit more vulnerability or trust if I do. What's one of yours? Because we got a whole bunch in there. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, here, this is really, it's a really, it's a really um, you know, safe place to talk about this stuff. With a microphone in your face. <laughs> um, I would say probably one of mine would be, I don't know, I think it's, hmm, could you say um, imposter syndrome is one? Totally. Because I think outwardly, um, I, I, I try not to show that, yeah, I'm phased. But um, 
a lot of the time I am so similar I'm upbringing I'm still because I'm only 21 I'm st- I still live in the estate you know what I mean I still see the police I still see a lot of my friends are yeah. in gangs someone I know died the other day not that I was close to anything but this is still my reality if that makes sense yes and I haven't left that reality yeah. however I, I'm still so I'll leave one day and for example last time I'll leave one day and then you go to Deutsche Bank and you see people you are making X amount of money and you go right home and then you're back, you're exposed to sort of like all of that like live raw. and real and raw trauma. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. often like your cognitive dissonance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then so you're just you're just interchanging and sometimes it can be quite difficult. But I never try and show like, oh yeah, I'm phased. It's just sort of your inner environment sort of thrive, I guess. It's like, what's the flight or. F- uh, yeah, fight, fight or flight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and I often choose to fight. Whereas, I don't know, I think it might be a bit better to, I guess, show that, like you said, the vulnerability. Because sometimes, like, inevitably, like, you will be phased and it's not everything that I'm going to be prepared for or anything. I can, like, I think sometimes situations, I'd be better off actually just being honest. And I think I'm trying to do that more often. For example, when I went to the first dinner with you, yeah. that um, quite a nice restaurant, I said to the guy next <laughs> to me, oh, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, so show me, it was Pablo Strong. And he was very nice about it. I was like, yeah, this... This feeling is for this, this focus for it, and it was, I was nice. better off for it rather than like feeling uncomfortable for the entire duration of the dinner. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember exactly that experience. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, of course, but you have to learn everything. And the one thing I've learned, I mean, it's two things I've learned in life that are really interesting. Number one is never, as you go through that, you, you don't know where you'll end up, but never lose that never lose that experience because sharing that experience in the future will probably be very powerful for somebody yeah right yeah um you know as you said just living between two lives you know, yeah. where, where are you gonna, i mean it's just phenomenal right and then the other thing i've learned is and I, i'm not perfect to this at all but the art of the question yeah the, the art of the question is probably the most powerful thing i've learned in 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 my entire career which is there absolutely is no such thing as a stupid question sure there really is not. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people will sit around a table and they'll try and look intelligent. They won't ask the question because they're afraid of somebody yeah. thinking, yeah. wait a second, yeah. I'm stupid because I asked yeah. that question. But it's amazing how many times you will ask a question, a really well thought out question. And then everyone in the room, you'll see sort of take a deep breath. You know, they'll just relax. They'll, they'll go, they'll exhale. Yeah. Finally, somebody's asked the question. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's nothing wrong with asking the question, you know, uh, whether it be order or away. <laughs> Use these yeah, these yeah. utensils in, yeah, yeah, and yeah. why? Yeah, still still amazes me that sometimes somebody somewhere, you know, like in the restaurants or somebody I really admire goes goes for the, the spoon. I think is completely illogical, and now I'm like, have I just mislearned this? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so so that sort of whole art of the question. If you can get confidence in asking yeah. questions. I've never been in a situation. If I think it's a stupid question, I'll use the British thing sometimes. Like, well, this may be a really silly question, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I call it the Tom Hanks moment, you know, in Big, where he goes, I don't get it. Yeah. And he's like, I don't get this, why this, this right. toy is cool. It transforms from a, uh, a building right. into a person. Why is that cool? And it's like, um, and they will hate him because he's, the, the boss loves him for asking that direct question. That's right. So just to end, if there's, is there one thing in your room that you would unpack more or, or, or delve into? No, like I said, I mean, the trauma question is one that's sort of weighing on my mind at that's the moment. That's the one. How you deal with it? And, and the fact that the more, you know, the more I've tried to sort of practice, you know, not practically, logically deal with structure around my life, get really good at, you know, work, being organized, all that sort of stuff, I worry that, you know, I, the, the, the sort of artsy feeling guitar playing side of me is, is, you know, slightly more boxed up in a room somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
so that's the only one I sort of I I'd like to unpack more is just you know is is why do I react that way? Yeah. You know, when it comes to significant trauma, in terms of sharing things I know about myself, I'd probably say I overshare. So there's you know <laughs> my room's pretty big. Back to your point, <laughs> I, uh, but I, I'm not going to regret oversharing. I think. No, no, that's fantastic. That's a great place to end. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. We've really enjoyed it. Oh.